It is one of the most painful, confusing, disheartening things to witness in the church. A Christian who turns away from the faith. Maybe it's a child. You can imagine a young woman growing up in the church. And maybe not the most devoted churchgoer, but she was there. She was baptized. She made profession of faith in high school. She went to Sunday school and youth group and seemed to be doing pretty well. And perhaps this girl had that one amazing mission trip where her faith was absolutely on fire, at least for a few weeks. And now a few years later in college, there is zero spiritual pulse. She's not going to church. She's partying every weekend. She's completely disinterested in Christ and wants nothing to do with Christians. How do you make sense of someone like that? Or perhaps it's a a former college leader who was reading all of the right books and saying all of the right things and sure seemed to be not only giving, but receiving, having been mentored and mentoring others. And then somehow two years after graduation, he's a committed agnostic and thinks all the things he used to believe with you are just nonsense. How do you make sense of that? Or imagine a a very bright 25-year-old studying for his Ph.D. He came to Christ through a campus ministry. And at the time, as an undergrad, was absolutely zealous for the Lord, would actively share his faith, go to Bible studies. And now he is into Bishop Spong. He goes to a very liberal Episcopal church, doesn't believe in the authority of the Bible, doesn't believe in a resurrection or the second coming. He doesn't think the cross has anything to do with the wrath of God. And he still calls himself a Christian, but he doesn't seem to believe the sorts of things Christians have always believed. One more example that we might imagine. Suppose a, a new couple comes to church and they seem sort of down and out and they've been divorced a couple of times, but now they're living together. They're not married, but they're sharing the same bed. And they have a history of drugs and alcohol, and they have different kids scattered around. But they come, and they seem to take an interest in Christ. And a church family welcomes them in. And before you know it, they're at church very faithfully. And they listen, and they move into separate apartments They learn to hold down a job. They they give their lives to Christ. They profess to believe in Christ. They start going through a new members class. And six months after that, you scratch your head and you you don't see them anymore. And you follow up and learn they're, they're both living now with somebody else, sharing someone else's bed. And they're back into the old scene with all the old stuff and they don't want to be bothered with Jesus anymore. These are just examples of what this can look like. How does this happen? How do you make sense of stories like that? Let me read to you from 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 17 through the end of the chapter. 
It's page 1019, 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 17. Peter again is warning the congregation against the false teachers. And he doesn't pull any punches in speaking and admonishing the false teachers and those who are following them. So we read, These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For, speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome The last state has become worse for them than the first, for it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. This text is about a recipe For apostasy, how does someone who seemed to be walking in the faith turn from the faith? A recipe for apostasy. But before we can dive in, I I need to do some preliminary work so you can understand what I am and am not saying. So we need to just think for a few moments about this doctrine we call the perseverance of the saints. Put colloquially, once saved, always saved, though it's probably better to talk about the perseverance or the preservation of the saints. And this doctrine, which I believe with all my heart, teaches that once you are justified, you cannot be unjustified. Once you are joined with Christ, you cannot be dismembered from Christ. Once you are born again, you cannot be unborn again. Those predestined for eternal life will be effectually called to Christ. Those whom God calls will be justified. And Romans 8 says those justified will in the end be glorified. There is this golden chain of salvation and it cannot be broken. Here's how one theologian, Herman Bovink, puts it. It's, uh, I have about four or five paragraphs here. If you want to get this for your own, you can go on my blog. I'm not trying to give a commercial. You don't have to you know, read that to be a member here. But if you want to, it's there. And this has over 40 scripture references. And I won't mention all of those. But this just gives a good summary of why we believe the Bible teaches the preservation or perseverance of the saints. He's, he writes this. Whatever apostasy occurs in Christianity... It may never prompt us to question the unchanging faithfulness of God, the certainty of his counsel, the enduring character of his covenant, or the trustworthiness of his promises. One should sooner abandon all creatures than fail to trust his word. And that word, in its totality, is one immensely rich promise to the heirs of the kingdom. It is not just a handful of texts that teach the perseverance of the saints. The entire gospel sustains and confirms it. The Father has chosen them before the foundation of the world, ordained them to eternal life, to be conformed to the image of his Son. This election stands and in due time carries with it the calling and justification 
and glorification. Christ, in whom are all the promises of God, yes and amen, died for those who were given him by the Father in order that he might give them eternal life and not lose a single one of them. He therefore gives them eternal life and they will never be lost for all eternity. No one can snatch them out of his hand. After every one of these phrases, there are Bible references. So I encourage you to look this up. The Holy Spirit who regenerates them remains eternally with them and seals them for the day of redemption. The covenant of grace is confirmed with an oath unbreakable like a marriage, like a testament. And by virtue of that covenant, God calls his elect. He inscribes the law upon their inmost being, puts his fear in their hearts, will not let them be tempted beyond their strength, confirms and completes the good work begun in them, keeps them for the return of Christ. In his intercession, Christ acts in such a way that their faith may not fail, that in the world they may be kept from the evil one, that they may be saved for all times. He is to behold his glory. The benefits of Christ, which the Holy Spirit imparts to them, are irrevocable. Those who are called are also glorified. Those who are adopted as children are heirs of eternal life. Those who believe have eternal life already here and now. That life itself being eternal cannot be lost. It cannot die since it cannot sin. Faith is a firm ground. Hope is an anchor and does not disappoint us. And love never ends. Read all of that to give you a context that the Bible teaches that those who are justified will always be justified. That when you become In the inner working of the Holy Spirit, a Christian, in the true sense of the word, that you are given the deposit of the Holy Spirit, who is an irrevocable down payment on your inheritance in glory. However, is it not difficult for us to perceive those theological realities, to always know when they are operative and they look as though they're not, or when they sure seem to be there, but they're counterfeits. And we must understand that Scripture describes people as they appear to be. It often gives this language uh, of how people would describe themselves. So you will read of a brother walking away from the faith, because that's how they present themselves. Or even in this text... Peter uses this conversion language in verse 20. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's the same sort of language he used back in chapter 1 verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. And then go down verse 4. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world. So. That's the theological reality. And Peter describes these false teachers at least as having the appearance of it. Describes them, to use the fancy word, with phenomenological language. That is, what does the phenomenon, what what does it appear to be? At bottom, this means that the people he's speaking about are connected with the church They have been part of the church family. They have made a profession of Christ. That does not mean that all of the 
theological realities have been present in them. Let me just show you one verse, which is an important verse to tuck away when you're talking about the perseverance of the saints. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be complained that they all are not of us. That's a little tricky sentence. But here's what it means. There were some people in our midst, part of our church family, John says, and they went out. We maybe even sent them out, commissioned them out, but they did not remain in the faith. John does not say, therefore, they have become unjustified, unregenerate. The promise has failed. He says, no, they have proven that they were not truly of us. I go through all of this about the perseverance of the saints so you can understand what I'm not saying. I am not saying that the truly converted can lose their eternal life. But I am saying, as Scripture says so plainly in many texts, that those who may walk in the way of the Lord for a time, those who may profess faith in Christ, those who may participate in the life of the church for a time, can turn away from the faith, either temporarily or even decisively. And this is what we see in this text. And sadly, imagine many of us have seen this in real life, and some carry with us that great heartache. So look again at Second Peter chapter 2. How does this apostasy happen? What are the steps? What are the results? In other words, what is the recipe for apostasy? Let me suggest three ingredients and three outcomes. First ingredient, if you want to make this apostasy stew, First, you take an unestablished Christian. Look at verse 18. Speaks of those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. Some translations say just escaping or scarcely escaping. The word barely can refer to either degree or to time. So degree, I mean, they they have not yet made a clean break with their former lifestyle. Or they have not completely uh, been set free from the temptations of these false teachers. So they're they're barely escaping. The the degree to which they have escaped is not complete. It can also have a reference to time. That is, they are recent converts. They've just committed themselves to Christ. They've barely begun. So I think the best way to describe this is with the word unestablished. So this means... This is often a chronological thing, someone who has just professed a faith in Christ. But it is not always chronological. It's not always just about recent professing faith. You may have been around the church for a long time, but if you've never received good teaching, no one has discipled you, no one has shepherded you through the hard questions, no one's ever modeled maturity, then for all intents and purposes, you may have just barely escaped. This is an unestablished Christian. Again, I'm using the language Christian as one would present themselves, as we would see them appearing to us. 
There are many dangers in being a baby Christian. Maybe some of you here are, relatively speaking, baby Christians. You think of all the dangers. A, a, a baby Christian can have the, the seed of the word land. And like Jesus tells in the parable of the sower and the soils, the devil can snatch it away or, or the difficulties of life can choke it out or the worries of life can crowd it out. Baby Christians are, so, are often easily puffed up. That's why First Timothy 3.6 says an elder is not to be a recent convert because he may be easily puffed up. You're easily impressed with your own knowledge, your own skills, and you're easily allured by those who will feed your sense of pride. Baby Christians are undiscerning. They have not established good habits. Many of you who have, you, you don't come to Sunday and most of you and think, what? What should I do on Sunday? I don't know. It's just there. You're just you're going to go to church. You go to go. And many of you don't wake up in the morning. What should I do? You're going to sit in your chair and you're going to read your Bible. You've had many years to walk with the Lord and establish good habits. But baby Christians don't have that. They're often mixed up with bad influence. They're still in this old way of living. Baby Christians are often naive about Christianity. And they're so excited, but they're maybe too idealistic and they're not prepared to handle the suffering that will come or just the boredom, the drudgery, the sameness of it all. Boy, this Christianity thing was just going like gangbusters for the first 18 months. But now it just it seems like work and I don't feel as much. False teachers target these sorts of Christians. Those are the ones if you ever watch uh, Planet Earth or Life, these you know, wonderful BBC nature documentaries. They're very tooth and claw, sort of watching big animals trying to eat little animals, and that's what life is. And one thing I've learned, this is I haven't had a science class for a long time, but I've learned from watching TV that predators go after little baby or old prey. That, that's what they go at. That's what I've learned, that the wolves don't try to take down a humongous caribou, but a little baby caribou, which isn't really that little, but is still pretty big. That's what they go after, the one that wanders away from the, the flock, whatever, the gaggle, the pride, the school, and tries to run it down. That's what baby Christians are like, and false teachers can, can spot them, and they're attracted to them. And this language, I know it doesn't sound very flattering to think of yourself as a baby Christian. But I think the language is appropriate. You think of a baby. A baby is precious new life. Everyone wants to see the baby. I have a baby. It's exciting when there's someone who has recently started coming to church, recently come to the Lord. It's a a baby Christian. It is a precious, sweet life. There is so much potential and newness and excitement. And yet, like a baby, it's very prone to danger. It needs a lot of help. A little illness in a baby can land it in the hospital. You have to monitor the baby extra carefully. And so it is with baby Christians. If you are unestablished as a believer, 
You must be careful. That is the first ingredient in this recipe for apostasy. The second ingredient, you mix that in, an unestablished Christian, and you mix in some confident false teachers. You see here in verse 18, these teachers were speaking loud boasts of folly. They are very sure of themselves. Peter calls them waterless springs, mists driven by the wind. Do you understand the the metaphor there? He's speaking of something that seems to promise a lot of help to you, but in the end comes up empty. It's a waterless spring. Ah, I'm so thirsty. Yes, here's a spring. And you get, there's no water. You live out in the desert as in the ancient Near East. Many people would. And you look and a cloud is coming. Perhaps it's going to rain. And it's a mist driven by the wind. And it leaves no precipitation. It says that's what the false teachers are like. They have all this promise. They promise you all these things. They speak with confidence, but they never really rain on you. Not what they should. It's hard to overestimate the impact that confidence has. Just people who speak very confidently. I had a friend tell me once, I'm, I'm not sure if he meant it as a compliment. I think he did. But he was just visiting church for a while here and he said, I'm glad that you're telling people the truth because even if you weren't, it would sound like you were. Uh Huh? I think he knew it. I know what he meant. You seem to really be confident in what you're saying. Now, confidence itself is not bad. Jesus spoke with authority. That's part of what set him apart. But he was not a loud boaster like these men. And so when you have confidence with false teaching, it is positively deadly. You ever listen to someone or, or a, a book and they just have no doubt at all. And then you start to doubt yourself. Well, they, they are so sure. One of the things I realized when I was in college is I had subtly put faith in Confidence, faith in sincerity. And because a lot of my my peers, I felt like were kind of going through the Christian motions, but I was very sincere and I was very passionate and I was very zealous. I I sort of knew in my heart, well, I'm right. Then I had a friend who was uh, Catholic and she was very zealous Catholic. It was giving me all these books. She said one time, Kevin, I know you'll be Catholic someday because you're too smart not to be. Well, that's a weird compliment. Um, and I didn't find any of her arguments very compelling. Uh, not Catholic, and I have some very strong disagreements. But what sort of rattled me was she was just as confident as I was. She had her books like I did. So was I, was I believing what I was believing just because I, I had run across others who were confident and it made me search for myself? Are there good reasons for, for thinking what I'm thinking? And I think there are. But you must learn that confidence, and confidence itself, if it's tied with false teaching, is just deadly. I think of some of the professors that I had, and they were often winsome, knowledgeable, charming, confident, and some of those were the most deadly. 
And their mission was to undermine the faith of what they thought were naive Christians. But they sure seemed to know a lot more, and they did know a lot more than the students. And it's just a recipe for disaster. We are easily impressed by intellect, or we're impressed by loud declarations, or we're impressed by people's absolute sense of certainty. False teaching can come with credentials. So one of the things I just have a burden for in the church, I sometimes hear Christians say, well, I can't possibly think through this issue because there's PhDs who say this and PhDs who say that. There's PhDs who say this and that about everything. There's books about this and that about everything. If you're you're just going to give up because smart people disagree, you're not going to know anything. You have to think. You have to wrestle. False teachers may have endorsements on the dust jacket of their books. They may have money. They may have good looks or good works. They may have education. Mix in an unestablished Christian and some very confident, attractive false teaching, and you are well on your way to disaster. Here's the third ingredient. You sprinkle in the promise of freedom. The promise of freedom. You see in verse 18, these baby Christians are enticed by sensual passions. Verse 19, the false teachers promise them freedom. Two kinds of freedom they promise. One, a freedom from punishment. People do not like to hear that their actions or their beliefs or their attitudes are displeasing to God. This is not a new thing. It has always been like this. It will always be like this. We do not like to hear that what we're thinking or doing or believing is displeasing to God. So there is always going to be a market for teachers who tell people what they want to hear. Scripture speaks of it as itching ears. Here, I got an itch right here. There's always going to be somebody who says, I'll scratch you where you itch. Yeah, 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 that's what, I'd, that's what I'd like to believe. I got in the mail this big postcard for a new book called Raising Hell, R-A-Z-I-N-G. Like if you raise a building, you tear it down. And I just read the blurbs, and it was uh, about how Christians have completely misunderstood the doctrine of hell, and God isn't really angry with sin, and he doesn't really have wrath. And so raising hell, we, we don't have to believe in this doctrine anymore. And I thought that will that will tickle some ears. Think of the false prophets in the Old Testament, the quintessential picture of a false prophet. What made them false? It was not so much that they told the people to turn away from Yahweh. It wasn't so much that they were manufacturing idols and selling them off to people. It wasn't that they told people to get rid of the Torah. It was simply that they told people everything was okay. And the prophets cried, peace, peace, where there was no peace. That was the quintessential false prophet. So a freedom from punishment. The second type of freedom they promise is a a freeing lifestyle. Look, you you can have freedom. You don't have to live in this box. You don't have to live by these rules. And it promises freedom, but it does not deliver. You may say that, well, go ahead and live together. But all the studies show there are much higher rates of divorce among couples who first live together. It is often a hidden statistic, but there are 
incredibly high rates of disease among gay men. Drugs and alcohol do not deliver the long-term freedom that they promise. I remember working as a, a chaplain in a center for addictive behaviors and with all of these people from all walks of life, and they would all talk to each other and say, you know, the only thing that's really going to get me clean, I'm either going to end up in prison or I'm going to end up dead. You may think escaping a difficult marriage, that's, that will promise me freedom. And you don't think about what, what it will mean for the rest of your life, for your kids. The sexual revolution of the 60s said, well, yes, this is the freedom we've been looking for. And now we can look back and say, are people really happier? Are children really better off? Can women really have it all? Has that made them happier? People often have false illusions about money, what they would do for money, to be in debt of money, to all the things money will do to deliver them from their freedom, to give them freedom. I was speaking at Westmont College on Friday and Saturday, which is uh, Ben Patterson, who is here in March as a chaplain there. So he said, come out and speak in our chapel and do a few things. This is in Santa Barbara, California, which it ain't mid-Michigan. It is, this is a, uh, a, a fancy place. It made, made me actually glad to be here. I, I fit a little bit more here. There was, uh, well, this doesn't really have anything to do with anything, but I was sitting down for breakfast and at the Continental Breakfast, which cost eight bucks. I thought Continental meant free, but it was eight bucks to have frosted flakes. And there was a, a mom with her two girls, and they sat down and got everything ready and were preparing. And, and then all of a sudden, they, they started to get up and leave. And the, and the daughter said, what are we doing? And mom said, there's no milk. And I turned around, and I had a glass of milk. And I looked, and then one of the daughters said, there's milk. She said, that milk has fat. Oh, man, what? Go and find non-fat milk? This is great. That doesn't have anything to do with anything. Here's my story. So I went on a run. I went on a run on Friday, and the hotel is about four blocks from the ocean, and ran up there. And people told me, go run up the hill, and you'll see this just palace, biggest house I've ever seen. Just amazing. I mean, hundreds of millions of dollars this house must, must be. It's owned by Ty Warner, who made Beanie Babies. Made millions and millions or billions of dollars on beanies. Well, people in the community just know all about this. And he's, uh, he bought two pieces of land and one had a, had a house on it that had just been refurbished for something like $15 million. He didn't like it. He tore it down. Uh, he built an, another palace. He, somebody was saying they had a friend who was a horticulturist there, and he would fly them to a different part of the world to say, could you look at a tree over there? I, I, maybe I'd like that tree here. And now he's something of a recluse and has all of these contractors after him because he doesn't have any money anymore. And he has this palace of a place that he can't pay for. And all of the millions, perhaps billions of dollars have have not given him the life or the freedom that he would want. You think of abortion. Freedom, right? Freedom to choose. That's how it's often pitched for women. This is about your freedom. I read an interesting article a year ago that said it actually has done just the opposite. Because it used to be even if a woman would have a baby out of wedlock, there would be some cultural pressure that the man should do something and maybe marry her or provide support and 
and the family would rally around her. But now with the, quote, the freedom to choose to end the life, then now the woman who is already in a difficult position is made even more to be the bad guy because everyone, family, boyfriend, there's pressure on her. Well, you, you have an abortion, right? And so if she chooses to keep the life, now she is imposing on everyone else. So there is no real freedom. Why did you choose to keep the life? Now, now I'm your grandma and I've got to help with this kid. Now your boyfriend's got to be around. It promises freedom, but it doesn't deliver. It just means more bondage. It doesn't provide any more freedom for women. It makes them more and more victims. And even as they make, along with men, bad decisions. Incidentally, one of the ways to argue in the public square is to argue along these lines of freedom. You know, in the public square, if you just quote a Bible verse, that doesn't always work. But people want freedom. Freedom is a good word in the American vocabulary. And part of what we can do is help show people that opposing God's ways does not actually lead to freedom. So those are the ingredients. Now, what, what do they yield? Let me give you three things. Rather quickly. Number one, you have this recipe for apostasy. It yields a surprising slavery. Now, when we get to the second half of this passage, it's, it's not entirely clear if it's talking about the false teachers or it's talking about those who follow them. I think it's talking about the false teachers. But in any event, it is a warning to all of us of what this apostasy looks like. And one of the things it does is yield slavery. Verse 19, they promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. Here's the irony, Peter says. They're telling you, hey, you can live this free life. But look at them. They're not free. And here's his definition of freedom. Whatever overcomes a person to that, he is enslaved. Give yourself over. That's the language of judgment in Romans chapter 1. And God gave them over. And God gave them over. So when people give you that piece of it, hey, just give yourself over to that impulse, that desire. Give yourself over. That's judgment. That's not blessing. Think about what, whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Is smoking a sin? It's bad for your body. Lots of Christians throughout history have smoked. It makes me hesitant to say it's sin. But if you smoke in such a way that you could not stop, suddenly you become a slave. That is a sin. Drinking, if you could not stop, if you are overcome by it. What about technology? I read on on the plane a book called Hamlet's Blackberry. And... uh, there's a book that I knew I needed to read and I didn't want to read. It's about, this is my generation and some of yours, it's about our addiction to screens. Needing those things in front of us all the time. TV screens, computer screens, phone screens, everything, iPods. Now, is it wrong? No, there's many blessings. But if you're overcome by it, if you can't do without it, then it is. What about Masturbation. Some Christian ethicists would argue that it's not necessarily wrong. However, I would suggest that this is something that is overcome, something that is enslaving, and it is in fact a sin. 
And here's the great lie of the devil. The devil always tells you, you don't have to be a slave. No, you can have freedom. But that's the great lie because everyone serves something. You could be a slave to science, and that is your master. A slave to your parents, a a servant to other people's expectations, a slave to success, a servant to sex, a slave to self, or you could be a slave to Jesus Christ. And only one will provide you real freedom. Here's the second thing you get with apostasy. You end up with a worse state than the first. Verse 20, if after they have escaped the defilements of the world, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become for them worse than the first. So this is somebody who has has walked along in the way of Jesus for a while, but now they have gone back to their old ways. And why are they worse off? Well, they're worse off now because they have a hard heart. They have an attitude. Well, I've been there, done that. I tried Jesus. I tried Christianity. Jesus doesn't work. They're now worse off. Verse 21, for it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after having knowing it to turn back from the holy commandments. This doesn't mean we keep Christ away from people just to be safe, but it does mean we must be careful to disciple and call people to count the cost. If they are going to raise their flag and say, I am a Christian, we must tell them that there is a cost, lest they get a little bit down the road and want to turn around. Hebrews describes it as trampling on the blood of Christ. says that they will be more strictly judged. It would be better that they have not known. Think of who are often the harshest critics of Christianity. It's those who are immersed in it and rejected it. And you hear all sorts of stories of people who had oppressive religious backgrounds. I don't always know if those are true stories or just perceptions, but those are, those are the stories. And, and those are like a, a Bart Ehrman, for example. They, they become the staunchest critics Ah, we've tried that. We've, we've been there. We've done that. And then they come out on the other side and they are worse than they were at first. And here's the last thing. Finally, there is a return to vomit. That's not a joke. That's the language Peter uses. Apostasy is like a dog returning to its own vomit, like a pig washing herself in the mire. Now, we hear dogs and pigs and we kind of think, Little dog and babe, the pig, and he's so adorable. There was nothing adorable about dogs and pigs. These are wild dogs. These are big, fat, dirty, stinky sows, unclean animals. Both of these unclean animals. This is not a good thing to be a dog or a pig. And Peter does not mess around with the language. He he says plainly, if you set out to walk with Christ and now you have turned away from him back to your own old life, you are playing around in muck and puke. Now, does that describe anyone here? I don't know. Perhaps someone will watch this online someday. Download it. Maybe you'll pass it on. And I just want to say to anyone contemplating, turning their back on the faith, do you really want to return to vomit? Is that what you want? You belong to Christ. You do not belong there. 
Why would you go back to the quicksand? Why would you revisit the spider's web? Why would you put yourself back into a burning building? Why, why, why? And let me conclude with just two thoughts. Hope and then a warning. First, hope. I want to hold out hope to anyone here. And and more likely I'm speaking to friends, to parents, to grandparents, to those who carry this burden. Is, is Is this my son? Is this my daughter? Is this my friend returning to the vomit? I, I... I was there when she stood up and professed Christ and it, it seemed for all the world that this was for real. So we must hold out hope and remember that Jesus is the good shepherd who willingly leaves the 99 who are safe to go seek out the one who has strayed, who has lost its way. And remember that if the theological realities are true, then they will persevere to the end, though there may be two steps forward before they can take three steps back, though there may be 100 steps off course before they get back on the course. Those whom God has called, He will justify, and those He has justified, He will, He will glorify. Take confidence and comfort in the sovereignty of God. And then a warning. I think we need to be realistic about this in the church, that this does happen. People do set out on the Christian faith and do not finish the race. And notice, as much as we might wish that Peter did so, he does not say, well, at least we know they accepted Christ when they were young. They did raise their hand that one time. It may have been genuine, but Peter and the rest of the New Testament writers are always saying, okay, what's going on in your life now that will give assurance that you are on the narrow path? We need to deeply disciple one another to understand that walking an aisle or raising a hand or joining the church or playing in the worship band, or getting baptized, none of these by itself secures your place in heaven. God must enable us to persevere, and He will for those who truly belong to Him. So Scripture has lots of warnings, and I think we should not be quick to discount the warnings. Realize that the warnings are the means by which God causes his people to persevere. Some of you may say, Pastor, I don't, I don't, I, I don't think you're leaning enough on perseverance of the saints. I don't, you, you shouldn't offer these kind of warnings about, well, you can turn away and don't turn away. No, I offer those warnings on the authority of Scripture because it is by means of those warnings that God causes you to persevere. Those who are truly born again, those who do belong to Christ, hear the warning, and they say, Lord, I do not want that to be me. Jude prays, keep them in the love of God. Keep them. Jesus taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation. We must not have a presumption or an arrogance 
in our walk with the Lord and say, Lord, keep me a Christian today. And I know you will. And so I just offer a warning. Do you see any of those ingredients in your life? Are you an unestablished Christian? Are you, are you paying attention to loud boasters? Are you allured by this promise of freedom that really turns into slavery? Is it possible that you are fooling a lot of people and you are really a dressed up dog or a cleaned up pig? Pray that it would not be so. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do ask you would keep us in the love of God. Help us to stay on the narrow path. There are few, Jesus said, who walk on it. Many are on the broad path that leads to destruction. James tells us that those who warn a brother, sister, wandering from the path and restores them, has saved them from destruction. Lord, if there are any here who have wandered from the path on their way to destruction, be gracious, bring them back. Frighten them in a godly way. For all that we have, all the names and faces in our heads and hearts of those that we once thought were walking with you and now are, are making the worst sorts of decisions. Oh Lord, have mercy on their souls. Comfort all those who are burdened. And we pray that we would, we would see the day when these lost sheep Come back to the fold. Oh, good shepherd, search them out. In Jesus' name, amen.